Good to see you, everyone, that you survived the camp. Woohoo. Praise God. Glad to see you refreshed after prolonged rest and work. I hope you're encouraged, encouraged to serve, uh, unified more than you came when you came into uh, gathering in a camp. So we want to praise God for the camp and pray to him because Jesus is the one who unified us. So in camp, we clap for everyone uh, except for Jesus, right? So let's clap for Jesus because he's, he's good. I want to also mention that one of our sisters, Sister Valentina, she's a grandma to Robert's family and great-grandma, but also to many of you, your children, because we don't have many grandmas around, right? So that God bless her tremendously with surgery and everything is good. God restored her health. So as we come to the Lord in prayer, we praise him for that. Bow down with me. Father, we thank you. We are encouraged by your presence among us and that you are the one who unify us and Christ is the one in whom we find peace and rest and in whom we find love to one another. Thank you for many people who served us at our retreat. May you bless that this retreat would be um, going forward. It's not just ending last week, but that would be just a stepping stone to a new relationship that we will build with one another, and we will bring this new relationship to the world and attract them with unity in Christ. I pray, Father, for those who are sick uh, this morning, and I pray and I thank you for uh, Sister Valentina, that you restore her health and bless her, Lord. We thank you that you answer prayer. Thank you for the church who is, which is praying for people in need. We trust you. Bless us now as we go to your book and study your word for our benefit and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now today we're going to begin a series on Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. And you would ask, like, why Thessalonians? We could resemble a lot with the Thessalonian church. The Thessalonian church, when they received this letter, was a very, very young church. It was less than a year old. So that's kind of fit to us. Our Grace Hill church is, is less than a year. We are a brand new church. Now, many of you walk with Jesus a long time and know about him and the gospel, but nevertheless, it would be great for us. Also, it is ministered by Paul and Timothy and Silvanus to the church, which were really rock, rookie ministers. Paul was in the ministry for a few years, just for a few years. For about 15 years that he, was, he came to Christ and became a believer. But Timothy was a brand spanking new person, and he was included in the, in the title in the beginning of uh, 1 Thessalonians. So we can resemble a lot. It has special place in my heart also because when we came back from seminary in 2009, we've been granted uh, to start a junior high ministries and then high school ministries, and we started with this book, and many of you went with us through those chapters and have some memories. So it is very appropriate for us, but it's also appropriate for us to study because this is a model church. Now, if I would ask you, do you want to belong to a dream church? Like, do you want to belong to a good, solid, biblical, great, modeling church? And when you think about this church, what characteristics this church has to have? Like, what, do you, what does the church have to exhibit? How is it should be different from any churches around us? Do you have a clear idea you might think that the great biblical church or dream church it would be when the pulpit is very solid and that is about it. That's part of it. Maybe that the, we have a dream band that leads us to worship. That would be a great addition. But what is this that makes a model church in New Testament? And I would sub uh, submit to you that the Thessalonian church was one of the best churches in New Testament. Now, it's competing with the Philippian church, but I think it, lose, it, it, it gains because Thessalonian church was named by Paul few times that you are an example, a model, and imitators, and worthy of imitating 
about all the churches around the region. So it is a great church. So with this, Tim read this 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 to 10, and we're going to read just four verses in the beginning. If you're there, please open to this dream church description in the New Testament. He reads this, and we'll cover a little bit more than just this. We'll be in Acts 16, Acts 17, and 1 Thessalonians 1. But let's read it. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God the Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, what makes this dream church dream church? Well, let me tell you this, that the first Thessalonians was written by Paul not because it was perfect church. It wasn't perfect church. It was a good progressing church. In chapter 3, verse 10, if you flip with me, Paul addressing the issue that it is immature church in many ways, and they need instructions, and that's why the letter was written. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, as we night and day keep praying, prayer goes with immaturity when people need some instruction, that we may see your face and make complete what is lacking in your faith. So it's appropriate for us too. There's many things lacking in our faith, and we need to study the Word of God so that it would encourage us to live a godly and a modeling way. Now, what makes this different, this church? This epistle has major two themes, two major themes. Among any, many things that Paul touches upon the Christian life, it has theme number one, the gospel. The gospel is the major theme of the book. Now, if you go with me, we just go quickly through the first Thessalonians, and I'll show you that the gospel has a prominent place. This is how the church starts. This is how it became convicted. This is how it became converted. And this is how it became progressive in evangelism, with the gospel. Verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of man we proved to be among you for your sake. Every chapter mentions or alludes to the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you what? The gospel of God. Now, in chapter 3, in verse 2, he says, And we send Timothy, our brother and God fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. In verse chapter 4, verse 2, he substitutes this gospel with the commandment, for you know what commandment we give to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And in chapter 5, he says, For God, verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That is a one reality that is apparent in among the Thessalonians. This is the theme, the predominant theme, theme. This is the beginning of the church. This is how the dream church began with the gospel. But there's another aspect, another reality that Paul mentions in every chapter, both in 1 Thessalonians and the 2 Thessalonians. It is the return of Jesus Christ. Every chapter of 1 Thessalonians mentions return of Jesus Christ. Now look with me. Chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. We're talking about return, the beginning and the end. And the church lives between these two realities. That's the perspective. 
Verse 9 says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God, gospel, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescued us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown or of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Again, he put this perspective. You started with the gospel. You live between two coming of Jesus, first and the second. Chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, verse 13. Look with me. It says, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. Before our God and Father, in the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now chapter 4, verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In chapter 5, verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul try to teach this church? He said, you began greatly with the gospel, and the gospel has effect. I want you to live your Christian life as individual as on the church between these two realities. Put them on the front of your dashboard and live as if Christ came yesterday and he's coming tomorrow. All you have is today. And in this regard, this church became a model. Now, I call this a dream church, number one, because it began with a dream. Do you know how these churches in Europe began? In a sense that we are continuation of the churches of Philippi and Corinth and Thessalonica, because we are most of us, European in Western civilization. But if you go back with me to Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, flip there, because you need to be there and see how this developed. Paul, we find Paul in a second missionary trip. Now, Paul is a very young believer. He's about 15 years old believer, right? He's probably older, but he's, he came to Christ in 33 AD. And then he spent a couple of years um, in, in running around from Damascus and Jerusalem, and then he spent 13 to 14 in Arabia, and then a couple of years in Antioch. And then he was sent out as a missionary, prominent missionary, but very young missionary. He went first time around the Asia. That was his focus. He went to go through all the Lystra and Derby and the rest of the Asian cities. And we find himself, him, that he established the churches And then he wanted to go one more time to preach and encourage this established churches of minor Asia. Guess what happened? Paul is full of energy. He said, Barnabas, we're going to go and encourage believers. In chapter 15, verse 39, it says, there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and other newbies, and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There was one obstacle in Paul's ministry. He wanted to encourage churches. He wanted to build the churches, and then he lost a partner. He has to build up another partner. He picks up, in chapter 16, a Timothy a young believer who probably was converted at his first missionary trip, and now he became a prominent disciple that Paul said, hey, I want you to come with me. And chapter 16, verse 1 says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and disciples were there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, 
They were delivering the decrees which has been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in faith and were increasing in number daily. So Paul goes on his plan, missionary plan, second missionary plan to encourage people. And he has a first bomb. He lost a partner. Now everything goes well until this point. He goes and the church is strengthened. He delivers them decrees. He teaches them the Bible. And they are growing spiritually. And it says growing numerically. Everything goes well until verse 6. Here's another road block in Paul's ministry. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now imagine this. Paul, a prominent missionary, goes to preach to Asian people. And he got stopped by the Holy Spirit himself. Now, I don't know about your ministries and your personal life. I have experienced stoppage when I was about to sin. But that's a different story. Paul got stopped when he was about to preach the gospel to Asian people. That's a roadblock. But Paul doesn't give up because he understands one thing, that he's under sovereign protection and sovereign plan of God. It is God who established churches. God who has planned for the churches to become and to fall apart. God has a sovereign plan for people and for the church. So Paul is not losing heart. He's not just sitting down and saying, well, I guess my ministry is over the Holy Spirit is against my ministry. He doesn't want me to minister to these people. I guess I'm just going to go to Troas, sit at the beach, and have my retirement plan. No, Paul, in verse 7, it says, After they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go to Bithynia. So the natural point for Paul said, Well, I can't go here, so I'm going to go up. I'm going to go northeast to Bithynia and Pontius, where there's no churches yet. And I will go and build the churches there and preach the gospel there. And it says there that Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, did not permit them. To forbid them. Same word that Jesus said, well, do not forbid children to come to me. Jesus forbid Paul to go and preach the gospel. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He came down to Troas. You know what's the distance between Lystra and Derby and Troas? Paul is walking in total darkness. He doesn't know the next step where he wants to preach. He only knows and learns where he shouldn't preach. That was a 500 miles road, and that's just not a miles like a highway miles. There's a mountain miles that Paul is hiking. Paul comes to Troas without clear instruction from the Lord, but Paul knows one thing. That he might not know where to preach, but he knows what to preach. There's never in Paul's mind that he should stop preaching. The only question is where. The only question is where to minister. And he sits at the Troas, and that's what I say, this dream church came in a dream that Paul fell asleep. And in verse 9, it says, a vision appeared to Paul. A church starts with a vision, but it's not your and my vision, it's God's vision. God gives vision. Now, in this particular case, and I don't want to follow this particular deal here that we're going to start dreaming about the church and just visualizing what we have. We have the clear mandate of the Bible, what the church should look like, and where should we plan God will allow it. But here's Paul, literally, in the dream, dreams. And I could say that this church in Philippi and Thessalonica started with the vision of God. It's a sovereign plan of God, number one. Number two, by the willing submission of Apostle Paul. Paul was sensitive to the need. Paul saw the need. You know, there's the difference between Paul and Jonah, great difference. Jonah was actively seeking to run away so that he should not preach. 
Paul is actively seeking where he should preach. And a vision appeared, and men of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. You know where's Macedonia? It's opposite of Troas on the opposite side of IGNC. That's a Europe. Until this moment, Paul was preaching in Asia, and then he was forbidden to preach in Asia in order to preach in Europe. Then when he goes to Europe, Paul get up and he said, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach gospel to them. Paul, understand the sovereign plan of God and that God wants to save people. He doesn't know whom he wants to save, he just wants to preach. And then Paul understand that he would be very sensitive to God's will. Now, there's a lesson for us as we go in our church and as you're personally going through Christian life. A no from God doesn't mean that you're a loser or that you're a failure necessarily. If God forbids you to do something, it doesn't mean that he doesn't want you to follow him. Jesus never forbids you to follow him and to do his will. And you know what his will for you and for me and for this particular church? To wherever we go, make disciples. That's what the mission. Wherever you go, you make disciples. You don't change the mission. You might change the place. And in this sense, we would never fail like Paul never did. He was forbidden to go to Asia and Bithynia and Pontus to preach, but he went to Europe and he go to number of cities, Athens, Corinth, and so on. Now, our goal in ministry must be put very high to follow Christ and to preach his message and to make disciples. If you get your goal in life to get married, you will fail. But if you get in your, life in, in your goal in life to follow Christ, you never fail. You might get your goal to move from certain place to another place. You may fail, but if you result to trust and follow Christ and to preach his message, you would never fail. You might desire certain activities and ministries in the church, and you might not get it. You might think you fail, but if you resolve to try to follow Christ and to preach his message, you would never fail. You might be resolved to be successful in whatever you do, and you might fail, but if you resolve to trust and follow Christ and preach his message, you would never fail. And so that's what Paul, this is a dream church, starts with God's plan, God's sovereign plan, and Paul's sensitivity to this plan. In obedience to a clear command, what should he do? That's a little bit about background, how Paul moved the direction from Asia to Europe. You know, it's interesting, though, that those places, Bithynia and Pontus, it's the place of modern Turkey where Istanbul is. You know what kind of religion reigns there now? It's not Christianity. And you know that this gospel made a turn from east to west. And we as a Western civilization greatly enjoy the benefit of that turn in the human history. Now let's look at the church and what makes this church unique or an exemplary or dream church, as you say. It's a, it has a, a great beginning in a dream, but also it resembles a great qualities. Now let me suggest you three things. And if you flip back to Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to show you something from this chapter 1 the direction in the church. Here's what I want you to remember. In order to become a model church, a godly church, a dream church, an exemplary church, we must be impacted by the gospel, and we must live in the light of second coming. And when gospel comes to the church or the group of people, it does three things, literally three things. Number one, it 
convicts people. Look with me, verse 5 of chapter 1. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. It convicts the gospel comes to you. It comes to you. And it shows to you who you really are. Number two, the gospel converts. Converts to people. Verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It converts, it comes to you, not only to you, but also it being received by you. It converts you, it transforms you. And number three, the gospel impacted church preaches the word. Because in verse eight, it says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. The gospel comes to you and makes changes in you, and it goes out. That is the sign of a modeling church. Now, let's look one by one, just briefly. If we want to be impacted by the gospel to the extent that it will convict us and convert us and make us preachers of the gospel, that gospel comes forth, we should follow these lessons. Look at with me at the convicted church. Convicted church. If you go back, I know I'll make you flip a little bit, but this is an introductory sermon, so back to Acts 17. We'll read first four verses. We'll see what happened actually in Thessalonica. When the gospel came to them, there were a bunch of unbelievers. There were a bunch of Jews, Old Testament believing Jews, a bunch of God-fearing Greeks who did not know Christ, and a bunch of prominent women in the synagogue. So Paul, verse 1 in chapter 17 of Acts, comes to this place. Now, when they have traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbath reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greek and number of the leading women. In other words, when the gospel came in, in the flesh and blood of Paul, they were convicted. They were convicted. I just have to say something about Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a great capital city of, uh, of the region. And it has been placed right on the main road from Rome to the east. It was a great city, big city, one of the biggest cities in, in Greece at that time. About 200,000 people lived there. Now, for our standards, it's not big, but for those standards, it's huge. And Paul comes to them, and he comes, as usually he practicing, he's preaching. He doesn't come to the totally oblivious people in the beginning, but he comes to people who seek, quote-unquote, God. And he comes to the synagogue of Thessalonica. And Paul spends at this town a very short period of time. Only three Sabbaths that he's arguing from the Scripture. This is a mixed group, Jews, God-fearing Greek, and women. And they're listening. And when Paul preaches, the gospel convicts them. The result of this that after a short period of time of three Sabbaths, arguing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, they converted. Now, people often compare when Paul went to Berea, the Bereans were more noble than Thessalonians. And it presented like as a great thing that you're more noble and that they didn't believe right away because they are concerned to the Scripture and they're just checking with the Scriptures. But... For my, for my point of view, the Thessalonians were greater because they didn't have to be persuaded for month and month and month. 
When the gospel comes to you and the Holy Spirit works by His power, you don't have to have many convictions from the outside. You believe. And in three weeks, basically, they came to faith. These God-fearing Gentiles, they were mostly who were comprised in the congregation because we know what happened. As soon as they received Christ, these God-fearing Greeks and also women, the Jews rebel. I want to point out that the message that, G, that Paul and Timothy and Silvanus were preaching was very simple. It says here what they were preaching. They were preaching that Jesus is the one who suffered. He has to suffer. He has to raise from the dead. And that is why he is the Messiah. Now, if you're listening here today, and you're not a believer, this is the message I want to hear you to hear. You don't need great explanation of great canyon and of six days of creation. All you need is a simple word of Jesus Christ that in order for you to be saved from your sin, in order for you to have a second chance in life and wipe your sins clean and be forgiven, all you have to do is to believe in this message, simple message, and make him your Messiah. That is all. Now, I could argue this from the scriptures, but that's all we have. We don't need to go to science. We don't need to go to archaeology. We need to go to the scripture. And from the scripture, we see that he lived a perfect life, died a horrible death for your sake, so that you may not die, but live forever. But I want you to understand also how Paul brought this message. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians, we always say that Paul brought the word, and that is a true thing. He brought the word. And Paul says, the word was really clear. I mean, there's not deniable. There's clear. There might not be great support from the other sources and from the poets and stuff, but it's clear from the scripture. And when we preach the gospel, as a church, we must be clear. If I would ask you today, can you give me the gospel? Can you give me clear points of the gospel that would be able to save a soul if they choose to believe? Would you be able to do so? But Paul says, listen, not only did I clearly preach the gospel to them, I brought this gospel wrapped in grace. I didn't come to the Thessalonica drop the bomb of the gospel, make it explosion, and the power of the Lord just exploded, and they were wow with the gospel. No, he said, the way I brought it to you, it was a very gentle way. Look, verse 5 in chapter 1 of Thessalonians. It says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now, it has to come in word. You have to preach. You have to tell. But he spends a whole lot of time Embracing this word in the relational aspect, he said, he come to you not only in this word, but also in the power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, Paul said, I gain in those three weeks your trust. I gain that I'm a trustworthy person, that I believe in this message, and the message is trustworthy. If you Go to chapter 2, verse 9, the same idea Paul is cultivating. And he said, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be burdened to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. He said, I paid for the gospel. I paid. I didn't take salary from you. And he said, I did it in a kind way, devout way, trying to be blameless, and I proved to be among you like a nursing mom, he said. And as a result, people were convicted of the truth. Now, that's one. If we want to be a dream church, and I hope you want to be, you want to resemble this, that you should be convicted the way how you receive the gospel and the way how you give the gospel. Number two, that didn't stop the church just at the wow, being wowed at the gospels. Like, wow, this is a great news. But number two, it was converted by this truth. 
impacted by the gospel, the church became changed. It changed. The gospel changes you personally. The gospel changes church. The word here that you receive the word in much tribulation, with much joy, it tells us that it converted them into a different identity. They become different people. Now, let me clarify something between conviction and conversion. You might be convicted of some sin, but you might never be converted. And conversion is proven by your repentance, turning around from worshiping whatever you've been worshiping to worshiping God, from dropping your idols and serving one and true living God. And it changes you how you relate to people. So, for instance, if someone got infected with malaria, and you would tell them, I have a great news for you. You're sick, and you're going to die, but I have a remedy. If this person only would be convicted that he's going to die, but would never accept and receive the remedy, the antidote, whatever you give it to him, he would never be healed. In order to be changed, we have to receive the word. Receive the word. How many times we hear the word, we get convicted by the word, but never received that the word of God does not change us. That we walk out the very same person that we came in. So this conversion brought by the word of God changed the relationship. Uh, verses 1 to 3, we see that the relationship is completely different. When Paul started this letter, he doesn't even say that I'm an apostle. He just say, Paul, like I'm one of you. I'm saved by the gospel. And then he said, your identity now in God the Father. Your church, you're a different type of people. You're a bunch of synagogue walking and gathering people. Now you are the church, you're the ecclesia. You were called out. Now you equally are in God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, you are operating right now by grace and peace. You're trying to way, make your way by the law. Now you are operating by grace and peace. You have a new type of relationship. Grace, God grace you. You are in God the Father. And Paul says, when I look at you and when I remember you, I'm praising God. I'm praising God because of the change that was apparent in you. Look, verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in, a, in your prayer. Now, pastors should praise God for their congregations. It's hard because not all of us good, not all of us always exhibit the characteristics and the change and transformation by the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, Always, for all of you, make a mention in my prayer. I'm praying for you. And you're praying and you're praising God basically for three things. I'm praising that you have changed in practice in a very obvious way. The work of faith, the labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. As we touch on briefly, notice that Paul doesn't praise them that they are believers. He's praising them for their faithfulness. The accent here that Paul is bearing in mind, not that they believe in Jesus, but they are progressing, the working of faith. Every time Paul mentions work of faith, that's where the emphasis, labor of love and steadfastness of hope. It, what is that those things produces that Paul praises them? I'm praising God that what faith produced in you, I'm praising what love produced in you, I'm praising God for what hope produced in you. And he says this is a lot of work, a lot of work that you produce. Now think about this. This is a young church, less than a year church. What did they produce? But it was so obvious. So obvious, undeniable that the gospel produced such a radical change that Paul says, I can't stop praising for the change that I see in you. And the labor of work. Now, there are a few words here, play of words, 
work, labor, and steadfastness. You know, James says, we know that the work, that the faith works when it produces fruit. And he does negative example. He said, can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh fruit? Jesus said, you will recognize the tree by its fruits. So if you say that you have faith, but it doesn't produce nothing, but just produce barnacles, it's not faith. It's something else. It's equivalent to the faith of the demons. But faith works. And the word here, is the, here for work of faith is emphasis and that is active. There's a word in Greek, ergon, meaning that is active. It's productive. It just never stops. It always produces. It always gives the fruit. But when Paul says labor of love, he, make, he intensifies this and he said, you are actually working really hard. You just don't say, hey, I love you, honey. You work. You might say it and you should say it, but you work. And this work is hard labor, much effort, sweat producing labor. Because love takes time, spends energy upon the object of love. Love never ends. What does lo- love looks like in our church? I was just thinking. When we're thinking about our church, do we see faith that works? Do we see love that labors? I tell you, it's easy to miss, but when I see John is running around with the teenagers, that's love. When I see people passing out the bulletins here, that's love. When I see someone stop by and speak to a child, that's love. When I see people taking initiative and just encourages people out of the blue and go out of their circle, just natural circle. You know, when the church ends, you are going back to your circles right away. Now I could see, like, who's going to go where? Just zoom in. But when you go out of the circle and we see that I see love, that's labor, that's uncomfortable, that's a lot of work, that's effort, that costs you something. Paul says, listen, when I see you, Thessalonians, I see that love works. It works. It's not just on paper. Then Paul says, I also praise God and convince that you are steadfast. Your hope produces endurance endurance. You're steadfast. You know, until I recently, you know, I had an idea about endurance, but now I have a better idea, you know, and I appreciate those who are biking a lot. And I could see that you're enduring in the race. It's, it's really hard. I mean, when your legs gives out, when you're, you can't feel hands, You don't know where you're going, but you just need to know, I need to come back home because I went 26 miles one way, and I just have to paddle back. And you endure. Paul is talking about your hope that is before you, that Jesus Christ is coming, produces the endurance to go through a trial. In New Testament, hope is always something that is not yet what's something in the future, but that is completely certain. And when you endure through something, you're basically asking one question, how long? How long? How long? When do I get there? And Paul is praising them, you're doing well, Thessalonians. You're going through. You're loving one another. You're preaching the gospel like crazy until this how long come, this Jesus comes. So Paul encourages us to follow this model. And he ends up in verse, now, verse 4 that no, he said, all of this would not be possible. All of this would not be possible. Your love, your faith, your endurance, if you were not be chosen. Because it says, I praise you in the knowledge of what you're doing and what's the progress and what the change that the gospel produced in you. But I also know what caused us all. And the cause of all the change in coming in the gospel is the sovereign will of God that he produced this change in you because he chose you. Verse 4 clearly says, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. 
He chose you. Now let me encourage you. To be chosen, it doesn't mean that now you could do whatever you want. I've heard people say, if a man has been elected, he will be saved regardless of how he lives, whether he believes in Christ, whether he gives the evidence of the possession of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, he will be saved. That is a blasphemy and that is a heresy. It's unbiblical. If God had called you, he will produce in you change into likeness of Jesus Christ. The result was obvious. They converted. I'll just tell you what they did. How this practically actually applied in chapter 17 of Acts, we see that. When, when Paul pre- preached the gospel, and many people believe, a lot of people came to Christ. Jew opposed right away, because that's what the gospel produces. When the gospel preached to the proud people, proud people resist. And they resisted, and they made an uproar and, made, and said that Paul and his companions, they preached another king who is Jesus And so Paul's relative, Jason, who gave the hospitality to Paul, he was arrested and persecuted. And what the church did was amazing. The church stood firm in their faith. They're only three weeks believers. They didn't fall. They said, well, well, maybe we have to reconsider. They said, no, we have to do two things. We have to collect the money and pay ransom for the Jason and the brethren and take him out. And second, we need to care for these apostles who brought the gospel to us and will send them away secretly. And that's for me, that is a faith, that is a labor of love, and that is endurance of hope. Now, touching briefly that the dream church is impacted church by the gospel in light of two realities, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his first coming, and his second coming, that we're going to give account, that our people will die in their sins. But it first convicted church, second converted church, and third church that allows gospel come forth. Paul says, I'm actually amazed that you put me out of job. I'm amazed. Like, I wanted to preach in Achaia and Macedonia, but I'm out of job because your gospel, that which was my gospel, now became your gospel, sounded forth from you, and you start preaching it to everyone by modeling and by saying it. Sounded four in verse eight, meaning echoing. When you say something loud in the mountains, you see here echo. When Paul said, I told you the gospel, you pick it up, you say it, and it echoed through. It has a ripple effect. It moved out from you. It just didn't take residence in you when you were just a cul-de-sac and hoarded the blessings of the Lord Jesus, but you actually open up the heart and start preaching to the lots of people in the region. The message of Jesus was so effective. Not only that it convicted them, Not only that it converted them, but it made them preachers. And we could say, how effective is our gospel as our church? It might come short. If it doesn't affect us into the explosive evangelism wherever we go, maybe we're not that affected by the gospel. Thessalonians made Paul's ministry in the region unnecessary. That'd be great. You trained the disciples, and they go. You know, we could adapt as a church many ways how we could live, but I would encourage us to live in those great realities, that Jesus came to bring salvation, that he is coming. And for those who he saves, It is a blessed coming, but for those who are not saved, it is a horrible thing. It is a horrible thing. And if we adapt those realities and put it on the dashboard, we will be an exemplary church. Now, we could live in isolation and hoard the gospel and protect ourselves and protect our children 
and make them homeschoolers and so on, just so that the word would not affect us. And that way we think that we're protecting the gospel. That's not the way we protect the gospel. This is a very hard way to preach and to make disciples, to be obedient to the Great Commission. It's hard. We could become self-serving church when everything goes to us. If you're a member of the church, you have the benefit. If you're a member of the church, you have the benefit. If you're not a member, you're out. You might want to move out to the Texas ranch where nobody touches you and you're just like self-serving congregation. Is that what God wants us to be? But we could be also a very indifferent church. That is our, I think, real dilemma, a real fear, that we don't care, that we become cruel to the world, that it's dying, and we care less. We're all about our own stuff. You know, the Lord is sovereign. He's going to save whoever he wishes. No, he chose you to be an example of his grace. I think that Paul is promoting here. There's another way, a Christian way, a Thessalonian way. Share, spread, give, proclaim the forgiveness of sins that was brought about by Jesus' sacrifice. You know what was the greatest motivation to preach the gospel for those believers in Thessalonica? First, they were blown away for the love for them. But second, that he's coming. That he's coming, and he's coming soon. They lived in the imminent reality of Jesus' return almost 2,000 years ago. Do you think we're closer to his return? Should his return affect how we live and how we change and how we proclaim? I think so. Paul wrote the Thessalonians, letter to Thessalonians to encourage Christian church to live the life of faith, engage in the work of love, and patiently proclaim the gospel in the light of Christ's imminent return. Christ is coming back. And this is a powerful incentive for the church to go out and preach. Father, we thank you. We are graced beyond the measures that your word is so available to us. It is so available that it becomes dull in our hearts, and I pray that it will have an impact on us, impact that it would convict our hearts, that would change our hearts and keep on changing, for we're not a perfect church, and that it would rings out, that it would come forth, that it would echo from us, and that in years to come, people will praise God for the labor of work that they've seen in us, I pray. In Christ's name and his glory, amen.